the rational disciplined speculator is not a gambler is a person who hates risk and does everything possible to stack the odds in his or her favor unfortunately that's not cheating in this game you are listening to mining stock education i am bill powers greetings ladies and gentlemen thank you for tuning in to another episode well i have with me on the line today for today's show lobo tigre he is the independent speculator and he is an investor he's formerly uh, known as louis james when he was with casey research his uh, website is independentspeculator.com newsletter writer and resource investor lobo thank you for joining me uh last week you were at the new orleans investment conference perhaps we could kick off the conversation with you sharing what are some of the key observations that you saw and experienced in new orleans Sure. Well, first off, thanks for having me back on the show. And I know everybody says that all the time, but I actually like this show because it's educational. It's not just tell us your, your thoughts in the last five minutes. It's I love that you dig into things and you try to explain things that will help people understand, do better and so on. So I, I, I like being on the show. Thanks for having me back. Thank you. On that vein, New Orleans is always uh, an educational opportunity and certainly a research opportunity. A lot of companies there that you can go and ask questions of the CEOs of and and things. And everybody should uh, embrace their own responsibility for due diligence. You can hire experts like me or whatever other newsletter writer out there to give you guidance. But ultimately, you have to make your own investment decisions. You have to feel good about them. And, and nothing helps with that better than doing your own due diligence and, and feeling that you have the research. So uh, I do encourage people to go to these conferences. I think they're worth doing. And every year you go and there's, you know, the mood is slightly different. I'm not sure investor mood is an investable trend that I could <laughs> say anything uh, you know, really solid based on. But it is interesting to watch. It, it, there's two interesting things on that score from the New Orleans show. One is that obviously... The mood was much more upbeat than last year. We had the gold breakout and people looked less, uh, you know, hung down and, and they didn't have that circle the wagons kind of haggard look that you that we saw last year. Uh, on the other hand, you would think maybe with gold having broke out from a six year rut, that there would have been champagne bottles popping everywhere, people more optimistic. And that's not the case. It, it was it was in grim determination, but it wasn't festive either. And it wasn't a record turnout by any stretch of the imagination. I think it was about the same size of the audience last year. And why is that? Is it that the breakout isn't for real or or so on? I don't think so. I I think the the rally in 2016, people got so quickly optimistic. Some of these stocks doubled, tripled, quintupled even in early 16 uh, when gold broke out and didn't rise as high as it did in 2019. Uh, But then the rally faded, gave it all back. And I think a lot of people felt that was a sucker rally and they got crushed and are nervous. And we've seen that in the equities not performing as well as one would expect in a major gold breakout like we've had this year. And where I'm going with all of this is whatever the reason, whether it's the 2016 head fake or not, I think we have uh, we, we don't have the kind of irrational exuberance that makes one hesitant to buy. And I think that's a very good thing. I, I do think the breakout is very significant. Uh, you know, whether you're a chartist or not, clearly the appetite for precious metals has changed. It is in a different phase. It's in a different place right now than it has been in previous years. That's extremely bullish. I don't think it goes away quickly. And 
because people were hesitant, because the, the sentiment is not yet euphoric, a lot of the related equities are still relative bargains. It's still possible to you know, get in on this without feeling like I'm going to be the last one to the party. So I, I think that's the bottom line here is that it is not too late. And in fact, uh, gold is correcting right now. This week, we've, we've seen some excellent entry opportunities uh, manifest themselves. Uh, and I have a shopping list, so I'm, I'm happy for that. For gold investors and mining stock investors that are concerned about this correction, what would be your thoughts that you have to offer here? Two things. One is, as much as, as those of us in the industry would like to think that the fundamentals and, and we look at the situation, geopolitics and the risks out there and so on, that, that gold should do X, Y, or Z. The big money that moves a paper price around on Wall Street and get settled in the London fixes and so on, you know that that doesn't come from us. That doesn't come from the guy going down to the coin shop in his hometown and buying another ounce of gold or a coin of silver ounces, right? That that comes from the people who have a very different agendas and following their own triggers and their own, you know, risk on risk off assessments. J.P. Morgan just came out with comments today saying they were reducing slightly their their bullishness on precious metals. All because of their formula, right? And and that's big money, and it's followed by big money. So I know that uh, precious metals investors get very frustrated with the markets and you know, and the you know, visible manipulation thereof from time to time. I understand all that. Uh, so in the short term, though, you, know, you just you can't let it get to you. These things happen. Uh, it doesn't change the fundamentals at all. At the end of the day, the fundamentals do rule. And if the world is a more fearful place. If the global economy is shakier, then some major uh, analyst on Wall Street's day-to-day -day impact on it, it doesn't change the overall trend. So that the bottom line on this is, you know, yes, there's manipulation. Yes, there's exogenous factors. Yes, there are many actors who couldn't care less about gold, who impact the price. But none of these guys stopped gold from rising. Uh, from 2001 to 2008 or from 2009 to 2011. So at the end of the day, reality does matter. And my message to your precious metals investors out there would be that reality is on our side. We all know that none of the problems that caused 2008 have been fixed. And uh, I think the writing is on the wall there. So I very much see corrections like the one we're seeing this week as buying opportunities. You mentioned that uh, there's buying opportunities with the correction. And also many of these stocks, particularly gold stocks, have not moved like they did in 2016, as you mentioned. When you look at the seasonality of mining stocks, it seems to me that we're in tax loss selling. And at least for some of the stocks that I follow, they've seemed to be selling off for at least the last month. Uh, what's your observations in general about tax loss uh, season selling? Well, the, the first thing to understand is that it's only a, a season in a relative sense. I mean, the, the actual tax loss selling deadline is 8A at the end of December where your last trades uh, can be booked so that if you are going to take a tax loss and maybe buy in again after a month or not or whatever at the end of the year, that's really when you have to make that decision. So a lot of the tax loss selling is really at the very end of December. Um, but there's other people who want to get ahead of that. And so if you have stocks that are underwater for the year and look like prime targets for tax loss selling, then you'll have people jumping in on that you know, the week before, say, and then people jump in trying to jump that gun, right? So it kind of smears out from the end and turns into this tax loss season when it's really a day and a tax loss event. 
So the things to keep in mind is it's it's not something that covers a sector. It covers specific stocks. If your gold stock is maybe not as up as much as you think it should be in a year where gold had a major breakout, but it is up for the year, it's not a candidate for tax loss selling. And you know if the whole sector is 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 lackluster, that doesn't mean that everybody's going to sell everything in the sector for tax losses. You you take tax losses on specific equities you're underwater on to offset gains in other areas. Or if you think it's going to head lower uh, so that you can buy back in again at a lower uh, cost basis in the next year. So that last piece is critical, and it's something for your audience to really focus on. If you really thought that the precious metals rally of 2019 was a head fake, say, like 2016, and it was going to go downhill from here, that even if you're longer term bullish, you might go ahead and take some tax losses or or, or use tax loss momentum to exit one way or the other and then buy back in again uh, after the waiting period. But you have to be very confident that prices will be lower if your intention is not to stay short. If you if you believe in precious metals in the longer term, uh, you, it's very high risk to take tax losses and think, oh, I'll, I'll buy back in again in January 31st or February 2nd or whatever the trading day is that you can do that on. Uh, because if the prices are higher, you know, You'll have taken an unnecessary loss, and you'll have a big psychological hurdle to get over of buying back in again at a higher price. So that tax loss strategy only makes sense if uh, you know you're done with a certain stock, or you, you you don't believe in its future anymore, and you've got gains to offset, or if you really are convinced that prices are going much lower. And personally, I don't know about your your listeners, and they should ask themselves. And personally, there isn't anything in my portfolio that I think is you know I'm done with. If it was so, I would have sold it by you know already for its for its own reasons. And I'm certainly not uh, thinking that gold is is down for the count or headed lower. I, I do believe that we are in a in a correction and not the end of the 2019 rally. Yeah, and in tax loss season, this is one of those seasons where I have to control my emotions because I have one significant position where I was up 35 to 40% earlier in the year, and now I'm down 35%. And as I was kind of uh, analyzing this with uh, an intelligent mining investor yesterday, he said, yeah, I think you could have another 30% downside from here with the way tax loss selling is going. So that's not what I wanted to hear, but it is the reality in the, in this volatile sector, but I'm going to hold on to it because of the long-term perspective of this company. Hold on. Before you go on from there, you said something really key. You said, I was up. I was down. So you personally may be up or down in the stock, but that doesn't mean other people share that experience. And you don't know when people bought what their cost basis is. So your tax loss selling decision can't just be based on your own uh, unrealized gain or loss. You need to look at the chart. And if it's a downward slope over the year, then the preponderance of of liquid money in that position is going to be underwater and it's a tax loss selling candidate. Mm -hmm. If the stock is flat or upwards, even if you're down, you know, you happen to have bought on a spike before or something like that. That doesn't mean that stock's going to see a lot of tax loss selling. That's a great point. Yeah, the stock peaked, I think, uh, March or April of this year. That's when I was up the 40%. And from there, it's been a downward hill. Um, But that's a great point. As you observe the markets, uh, we saw the producers, the gold and silver producers, uh, put out their earnings report. What are some of the the key things that you've observed here? That's a a really interesting thing to bring up at this time because we had such a great Q3 for prices. So there are a lot of earnings beats coming out. You know, most producers don't adjust their guidance on a quarter by quarter basis. 
they'll only adjust their guidance. Maybe they might adjust their guidance halfway through the year if there are material differences. They really expect changes, or you know, force majeure. You know, some big thing happens to that company, they they may adjust their guidance. But in general, they don't. So we're seeing a lot of beats and uh, tax. Sorry, not tax loss season. <laughs> That's still on my brain. Uh, earnings season. Uh, is still upon us. This week, in fact, is a, is a week chock full of press releases, and I think next week we'll see more as well. So it's it's not done. We've seen some terrific beats, like Nico Eagle, for example. I don't own the stock, but you know, it was a terrific beat. Uh, an interesting one was Sentara, which actually reported a, a big loss, but it was because of a write-down. Operationally, the higher gold prices did really well for it. Um, Predium Resources, I don't own any of these right now, by the way. Uh, Predium Resources reported positive earnings. They were much smaller because the company had operational difficulties. And these were substantial operational difficulties. They had an entire stope hung, which, which means they blasted it and the ore did not fall down to the haulage level. It stayed in place. It's hung up there, literally. Uh, and, and problems with another stope. And um, you know, the stock responded, of course, negatively. But it's, it's interesting that despite you know some serious setbacks they had, they still managed to deliver positively to the bottom line because of the higher metals prices. It just goes to show you know, how important it is, the leverage that is, if you have companies that are making money or, or, or you know, close to profitable, and then you have a great quarter, then boom, suddenly you get these, these terrific beats. And unfortunately, gold is correcting right now in the middle of this uh, earnings season. But I, I think that's very important. And it depending on how things play out right if if the fed's easy money policy has the broader equities markets just going gangbusters again and it's it's happy days again um people may not care people may not notice but if all these recession signs we're seeing about the u.s and, and problems in the global economy and europe slowing and so on if that if that continues to have a negative impact on equities in general then a sector that as a whole shines um which the precious metal sector looks set to do for earnings season. Now that, that could get a lot of attention. Um, I, I think it would be difficult for that attention to turn into buying if gold is dropping at the time. But, but if we're right about this being a correction, then all that positive attention and a rising gold environment could have a, a big slingshot effect under the gold equities. We could, we could actually see like when we started out talking about how 2019 is not like 2016, uh, this earnings season could be the thing that shows that and, and changes that. And it could be very interesting going forward if that comes together. That was a lot of ifs in there. <laughs> Mind you, I, you know, I'm not promising that, but I am I am watching this because this you, you're looking, you know, what could be the catalyst? What could change the, the investor sentiment? Well, this earnings season is an answer to that question. Osino Resources is a Ross Beattie-backed gold exploration company in mining-friendly Namibia. Osino's district-scale land package is situated near two producing gold mines, one of which Osino's management team previously developed and sold to B2 Gold. Osino's founders and management are experienced mining professionals who have already successfully developed and sold two companies in the past seven years. Osino has an excellent shareholder base with Ross Beattie owning 20%, Insiders 5%, and Resource Capital Funds 8%. This is an exploration company with drills turning that you'll definitely want to pay attention to. Osino trades in New York under the ticker O-S-I-I-F and in Toronto under the ticker O-S-I. To learn more, go to OsinoResources.com. That's OsinoResources.com. 
Lobo, your moniker is the independent speculator. And for the listeners that didn't listen to my first interview with Lobo about four or five months ago, you can go back and listen to that. And in that interview, uh, Lobo breaks down why he chose the name independent speculator. But um, something that I've feedback or what I've been told by some of my friends uh, who own, they're savvy, business savvy, as well as investment savvy. And one particular friend who invests in real estate, uh, as I was talking to him about what I do with mining stocks, he said, it sounds like what you do is nothing, is not different than gambling. So Lobo, my question to you is, what's the difference in your perspective between speculating and gambling? That is an awesome question. And there are materials on my website. There's a a free report called Speculation 101 that people can download in the special reports tab of the website, independentspeculator.com, that covers some of this. But in, in a nutshell, gambling ultimately is a game of chance. And okay, if you're a world-class poker player, it may be more than chance. You have psychology on your side and you can maybe detect when somebody else has a tell or something like that. And this is one reason why my mentor, Doug Casey, is a poker player, because it's more than a game of chance. It has, for him and for people like that, it has become a game of skill as well as chance. Uh, so if, and that's, that's really what we're talking about here. When the difference between speculation and gambling is that gambling is a game of chance. Now, if you can bring more to the table than just chance, then that changes it. And the speculator doesn't just say, oh, I'm going to throw darts at the board and, and hey, maybe I'll get lucky. You know, I like gold this year, so I'm going to buy gold. And, hey, maybe I'll get lucky. No. The speculator looks at the world, looks at the trends, identifies trends in motion that have implications. You know, if the Fed is easing, 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 this has implications for the value of the dollar. It has implications for the value of things priced in the dollar. Uh, those implications might be different if they're industrial commodities versus safe haven commodities. Right? So if you see something that's happening in the real world and it has investable implications, then you're not just gambling. You're not just throwing darts at the board. You are hopefully as objectively as possible analyzing data in the real world and you're putting the odds in your favor. The, the rational, disciplined speculator is not a gambler. He's a person who hates risk and does everything possible to stack the odds in his or her favor. Unfortunately, that's not cheating in this game. Um, one of the things, though, or, or the thing that still makes it speculation and not regular investment is that you are predicting the future. You are saying, given all of this information, mm -hmm. you know, the odds look very good that XYZ will happen, and I'm going to bet on that. It is a bet. I'm going to bet on that happening. Uh, but it's, it's very different to to see, to analyze, to research, to come up with data that supports the thesis, to test it, to see it happening, and then bet accordingly versus just, oh, I read this article, I'm excited, I'm going to buy this, or, oh, I want this to happen, or, you know, I'm, I'm a hard money advocate, gold, gosh darn it, should go up, so I'm going to buy gold stocks, you know, that's, that's different. And obviously, if you're, sorry, just, you know, again, if you just show up at Las Vegas, you're the new person going there for a, for a bachelor's party or something, and you're just gambling well you know you're not in the same category as a world-class poker player 
uh, who is truly playing a game of skill and not just chance. I think sometimes speculations can become gambles too when, as you said, we lay out those initial data points and in our analysis, we understand the risk reward and probabilities of success. We do those calculations and come up with that thesis. And then if a lot of those data points um, don't prove positive, and we just stick with the stock moving forward yes. and we get sloppy, then it becomes a gamble yes. in my mind. <laughs> uh, absolutely. You've, you abandon the data and then you, 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 that's a great way to put it. The moment you stop paying attention to the data or mo the moment you decide, you know, you don't want to know or you convince yourself that, no, my, my thesis is right. You know, I'm going to stick with it through heck or hell, you know, um, then you've abandoned the thing that separates you from a gambler and emotions uh, are so strong. And this is, you know, it, it sounds like a no brainer. It sounds like we're saying things that are obvious buy low, sell high and so on. It it's also obvious, but it's so easy to say and hard to do and the emotions and getting uh, wedded to a, a thesis is so dangerous. This is what, you know, I don't want to quote Doug all day, but he's so quotable. One of his one of his quotes is, uh, "These stocks are not family heirlooms; they're burning matches. Right? You you can't treat them like something that you can own forever. And and you must keep your eyes open. You you now you you don't want to just be flighty in and out. You don't want to sell just because the price fluctuated, especially in thinly traded stocks. The the price can fluctuate thirty percent a day just because some some fund had a redemptions right, or or some broker had a mental breakdown or something." You, there are many reasons besides there being anything wrong with the speculation for a price to fluctuate. Price and value are not the same thing. A price movement by itself can signal something important, but it is not by itself actually the important thing. So you have to go and find out what the important thing is. And if there's nothing wrong with the speculation, but the price is less, well, then you have to ask yourself, do I believe in my work? Do I believe in my research? You know. So we're, we're not saying to abandon your speculations anytime anything bad happens. Uh, if you recall, when you asked me this question, the first thing I said is that for rational, disciplined speculators, it's not gambling. And, and discipline is key. One of my mottos is discipline pays. I just posted something on Twitter uh, yesterday with when, when gold dropped down so sharply yesterday, I said, ah, you know, I've been thinking that if it hits 1450, that will put the Fear into people and, and a lot of the stocks in my shopping list might come within my entry level target. So, you know, I'm, I'm looking forward to that possibility. And somebody responded on Twitter saying, ah, you know, buck up, step up to the plate. You know, don't be penny wise, pound foolish. You know, who, who cares if it's 1460 or 1450? It's close enough. And I wrote, you know, I wrote back, sorry, but I got to disagree. My experience is that discipline pays. And you know, I can make an argument that 1450 is a more important psychological level or a technical level, and it might trigger more selling. But that's really not what it's about. It's, uh, you know, I looked at it, I made a decision based on the data, and I'm looking for that 1450 trigger, and I'm, and I'm going to be disciplined, and I'll wait for the market to come to me. And I may miss out. That does happen. But I can tell you, there, because markets are so volatile and precious metals on steroids, uh, there have been more times where I've set a price target on a stock and it seemed to get away from me, but it, ultimately it came back and the market came to me. I've been more successful on that than there have been ones that I just missed. On the idea of uh, diligence, I should mention that your Twitter handle is Due Diligence Guy. 
Lobo is at due diligence guy. And one of the due diligence or data points we want to uh, do an analysis on as speculators is jurisdiction. Uh, You recently wrote an article about what's going on in Latin America. Can you give us a breakdown of your political analysis of what's going on in uh, South America and how that affects the mining industry and ultimately our investments in mining in Latin America? Right. Well, in a short time space, we can't really give this subject all the, the, the depth it deserves. But I, at the very least, I would encourage people to research this, to think about it. It is a big deal. It is, it is a serious situation. It's not just one country. It's multiple countries. And it may not even be Latin America. We're seeing a resurgence of Arab springish activity uh, in, in northern Africa as well. And really, this is... A big picture. So but let's let's talk about Latin America because there are headlines out there about the so-called Latin Spring and so on. And uh, I, I have to say, I, I, I'm, I don't really see this as a spring type movement. This isn't necessarily a move against dictators. This is moves against democratically elected governments uh, or somewhat democratically elected governments. Anyway, not an iron fisted dictator in most cases. So it doesn't have quite the same feel as those Arab Spring revolutions or the original Prague Spring. Uh, But that said, these things are real and there is real misery and real unhappiness that is bubbling up right now. And it it sure does seem like these things come in waves and the the bottle comes uncorked in one place and it just seems to spread. A shot heard around the world, that sort of thing. We've seen this repeatedly through history. So, what does all this mean for the investor? Well, obviously, in the countries that are experiencing turmoil right now, Bolivia, Chile, and I hate to say it, but Ecuador too, they don't necessarily instantly become no-fly zones, but they are certainly something you should think twice about before investing in and, and look at you know, how bad is it, what what's the likelihood of resurgence of problems. I'm actually thinking right now that I need to do a, a new due diligence tour precisely to these countries uh, to try to get a feel for how entrenched, how difficult. Not having done that yet, I can say that the problems in Chile look most concerning to me. And uh, you know, I, I don't see an easy or quick out there. That, you know, the president even already sacked his, his cabinet and so on. It wasn't enough. Um, so you know, it, that, that has long-term potential implications. So one, you know, the obvious one is uh, think twice before investing in these countries. The next obvious one is what do these countries produce? And in the case of Chile, you know that's a, a major global scale copper producer and other metals, but you know, copper in particular, a protracted trouble there could impact the copper price. Um, Bolivia produces uh, a number of things, but for a lot of investors, it was already no fly zone. For me, uh, Bolivia, I'm one of those, but Bolivia was already a no fly zone for me. So the upset there doesn't change me. Ecuador concerns me. Uh, I do have exposure there and it had you know, been an up and coming country. It seemed to write the ship, become a more investor friendly place. Uh, for, you know, so, so that's a concern. Unfortunately, things there seem do seem to be returning more to normal more quickly. So one size does not fit all here. You have to look at the country separately, look at what's going on. The other less obvious thing, though, is, you know, it's it's fine to sit here in the U.S. or Canada or, or one of the wealthier countries in Europe and, and say, oh, well, this is some far off place. Uh, it doesn't really affect me that much. But it's not a place. If, if the whole continent sees uh, a surge of upheaval 
I mean, just look at the impacts we're seeing on Hong Kong. Hong Kong's farther down the road. It has different causes. That is uh, much more like the original Prague Spring, right? It is an uprising against political oppression. Uh, and look at the economic impact of that, what they're even willing to admit, you know, whatever they're willing to admit, it's, it's a sure bet that the reality on the ground is much worse than that. So they're farther down the road there. If if we see trouble continue in Chile or in some of these other countries, then those countries will have you know, that impact on their GDP. And these far off places in strange lands, these are customers for you know, machinery and equipment coming out of Germany as well as from China or other places. It does have an impact. And it's not one, it's a slew of them. You start adding this up and it spreads. And, and you know, never mind what's about to happen to poor Argentina. We can all cry for Argentina. We, we know whatever it's gonna be, it's not gonna be good um, given the elections there. So this is a big deal. This is a continental move in South America and it is having echoes around the world. So if a large number of countries uh, experience upheaval, which has economic impacts, that that becomes a drain on the global economy, which is already shaky as it was, is already cooling as it was. That's that's the unseen part of this equation that I highlighted in that article. How often do you speculate around a political upheaval and then the resolution of that and how it might affect the mining sector and therefore a potential investment in a, in a company in a country? Well, here I am different from my friend Doug Casey. You know, he's famous for flying into war zones and, you know, he almost bought that castle in Zimbabwe for $85,000 is the story. And he saw it on the market later for $35 million or something <laughs> like that. You know, that's a classic Doug Casey story. Uh, I'm not like that. I personally don't really care to go where bullets are flying. Uh, I rather like my skin without holes in it. And I hate losing money. Uh, you know, Doug, I'm not saying Doug likes losing money but he's you know he's up there on a scale with with eric sprott and rick will and these guys and and they can cast a very wide net and the occasional 20 baggers 50 baggers even 100 baggers can make up for a lot of losses and the average investor isn't like that the average investor can't afford to lose as often as these guys can and still come out ahead you know, mind you i'm saying number of losing trades not losing money right that's that's the difference here so I try, I try really hard not to have any losing picks or to minimize the number of losses. And I'm, I'm just, I'm not going to on a lark go and say, oh, hey, this place is a disaster. Let's buy this. I, my, my view is more like I'm not going to catch a falling knife. I'm not going to try to catch a falling safe. I'm going to let them fall and let them smash and then see if there are pieces worth picking up after the fact. Now, will I buy the bottom that way? No, the bottom will be in the rearview mirror, but my risk will be much less. So I'm, I'm willing to miss the bottom. I categorically will tell all your listeners out there on anything, never mind even just crashes, on anything, I have no interest in trying to time the bottom. I'm much more interested in jumping on board a trend. Remember, we talked about disciplined, rational speculation being about predicting trends and following trends, not just gambling. So I'm, I'm very willing to jump on a trend that I see has upward momentum. And even if it's in an unpopular place, coming back to your question, if something has crashed, uh, you know, if Ecuador had scared away investors in 2008, was it? Good timing. Um, but is now seemingly on the mend and you can do business there. You know, I, I was willing to give Ecuador a chance because that was a, a positive trend in motion. I don't try to get in there during the crisis, but I'm willing to go there after the crisis. And the beauty of that is, is given the painful crisis, 
you know, if, if your due diligence shows that whatever it was is done, like if you can convince yourself it's not going to happen again or the pain is done, then the, the lingering pain keeps investors away for so long that if you're patient and disciplined, you can buy in at terrific prices and, and come out way ahead. Lobo, I'd like to get your thoughts on the newsletter writing industry. Uh, many investors and family offices look to newsletter writers such as yourself for advice and guidance for investing and navigating this sector. I listened to two uh, newsletter writers that come from a more geological or technical background discuss why they think that is the key feature for a newsletter writer and why that's so important. And then I was able to partake in a conversation recently with two newsletter writers who don't come from a technical background, and they voice the opinion that that actually helps them um, communicate to potential investors because they're looking at this more holistically, not only geologically, but holistically from the vantage point of an investor. Uh, what are your thoughts on this issue? Well, you may think that I'm going to come down on the side of the non-technical person not being a professional geologist myself. And this may sound wishy-washy, but I'm going to come down sort of on both sides and then give you a third alternative here. <laughs> uh, one, one thing to keep in mind is that some of these technical guys are they're really, really good. And I'll, I'll tip my hat to Brent Cook here. He's one of my esteemed peers that I truly respect. You know, I have seen this guy jump off a moving truck, rock hammer in hand, bang on a rock and come up with sulfides that the management of that company that had that property didn't know were there. We were going to call it the cook zone if it turned out, you know, they drilled it, nothing happened, oh well. But, you know, he saw something literally from a moving truck, jumped out and banged on the rocks and came up with something that sparkly. It was, it was pretty impressive. So, so Brent knows his stuff and, you know, if, if you're personally inclined towards the technical side, I, I think that's fantastic. I would recommend Brent Cook's newsletter. Now, on the other hand, I have I've sat there on a panel or we've, we've compared notes. There have been stocks that, that I saw a hockey stick coming and, and Brent just couldn't convince himself that that was ever going to be a minor. He had technical reasons why he couldn't go long on that play. And I was right. The, the, the stock chart pulled a hockey stick. So, I would say, you know, wearing my evil scum of the earth newsletter writer hat here, you know, that, that, you know, it may sound nasty or whatever, but I, I, I don't care whether the mind gets built. It's unless it's a mind building play, but my job is not to find, you know, minds that are going to be built. My job is to make money for my readers. And if the stock's going to go up, if it's the flavor of the day and it's early on and I can predict that the sucker's going to run. I'm okay with making money on a flavor of the day, whether or not the mine ever gets built. I, you know, I, I have, uh, you know, some absolute non-starters. I won't invest in people who have lied to me before. I won't invest somewhere where I think the political risk is too high or the risk of nationalization or, or, or physical safety issues and so on. We've seen some of that in Africa lately, you know, pretty horrific events over there. Um, so I, I'm not saying that I don't pay attention. I don't care. I'm saying that I can see where the there's an argument or a case for the other side where you know if if the reader wants to make money, then that that's really should be the term, determining factor. And I have been told by geologists in the field when, I, when they explain things to me and okay, I've been doing this a long time and I understand a lot of it now. But I, I was told numerous times by geologists when I said, "Oh, I'm not a geologist," and they would say, "Oh, you know that can be an advantage because you don't get lost and don't see the forest for focusing on the trees in front of your face." So even geologists will admit that, that they can get hung up on technical details. So I, I can see an argument for both. But here's my third path here that, uh, that I would suggest to your listeners. 
And then it's what you, what's really important, you know, these are different ways of, of doing things and you could argue about which one's better or the other, but what's really important is knowing that the newsletter writer is on your side, that he's working for you, that it's, you know, what is best for the readers, the customer is what this person is focused on. You know, do they have skin in the game with the readers is one way to measure this. Um, do they feel like they're trying, do you feel as a reader that they're trying to sell you on something, whether or not it's a good idea, or do you feel that they are, yeah, and here's where I'm tooting my own horn here a little bit. It's obvious where I come down on this. So I'm not going to, I'm not going to say that. I'm just going to say, I think, uh, something that every person out there can do, whether they're geologically an expert or a financial expert or not, you know, you, you all have your experience in life and you should have a sense of when somebody's BSing you or not and how comfortable you feel with the person that you're doing business with. And if you can't convince yourself that that person is on your side and is, and is truly writing and bringing ideas to you that he or she thinks are in your best interest and you know, whether it's selling or, you know, or, or looking after you or keeping up with the portfolio, you know, are, do their actions tell you that they're on your side and they're looking out for you or themselves or promoting companies, right? If they're, if they're really this there to promote companies, that's not in your benefit. So I, I think that's what your readers should, or, or anybody out there as a consumer of newsletters, that's what they should focus on. Before we leave talking about newsletter writers, I guess I would like to get uh, your thoughts on one more issue. Something that I don't appreciate is when some news, newsletter writers promote their newsletter writer, you know, sign up in order to get this next secret stock pick that could go fivefold in the next six months. And yet at the same time, I've observed this person or persons over the last several years where some of their picks as I've tracked them are down 80%, 90%. And it's almost like those fails never even exist and are never referenced. And obviously you can't sell a newsletter writer, newsletter if you're going to promote, hey, look at my last 90%, my last 80% loss. But what's, yeah. the, what's the balance here? Um, well... You're, you're sort of singing my song there. Part of my effort here is to be fully transparent. I am posting on, there's a track record tab at the bottom of every page on my website, and you can see all closed sales. And that includes you know, everything. It includes screenshots of the trade orders. It includes what I paid, how many shares I bought, brokerage fees, everything in and out. And so these are not theoretical gains or model portfolio gains. These are my actual trades from beginning to end. There's only a handful of them now, and I just took my first loss. So right now the average is lower than I like. Um, but, they're, but they'll all be there. And good, bad, ugly, whatever happens to my investments and my portfolio, they will all be there. Uh, and I, I, I've lost track of the question. But so, so my answer is personally, this is what I'm doing. Is I'm, I'm just gonna disclose everything and people can take from that what they will. Uh, as far as the question of how to manage this, Obviously, you can't sell a newsletter touting your, your failures, um, but you should be able to document some kind of track record and say, you know, what, what's the average or what's the overall outcome? Um, I will say one more thing, and I, 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 I want to be very careful here. You know, I, I, I endorse Brent Cook. I, 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 I can honestly recommend him as a, as a guy who knows what he's doing. The next thing I'm about to say, I can't say that because I don't know the people. I've never met them. I don't know where their hearts and souls are in this business, but there is something called stock gumshoe where not only do they, um, 
they do two things. One is they have a newsletter they're selling, which makes me a little suspicious, but they are selling a newsletter, which is all about guessing these about these promotions, right? When you're talking about these guys saying, oh, there's this one little tiny stock that can go a hundred bagger or whatever, you know, if you sign up now before midnight, you know, um, you know, their whole business for this letter is figuring out what those are and telling their subscribers before, you know, this big rush comes in from the promotion. So it's, it's all about getting ahead of, of not the success or failure of the company, but getting in ahead of the success or failure of the promotional effort, which personally, I find it hilarious. I think it's very funny. You know, I don't do those kinds of promotions, so I, I have, it doesn't hurt me at all. Um, but if you're interested in this and you want to see people figuring out and teasing apart these promotions and saying the good, bad, the ugly about it, uh, Stock Gumshoe does that. Now, you have to pay for that. And I'm not promoting that product or saying you should subscribe. I'm just saying it exists. They also have a rating service, though. They give a, a one to five star ratings to various newsletters. Uh, they don't seem to have noticed that I'm independent yet. I'm not sure whether that's good or bad. I haven't decided whether to raise the issue with them. Um, but they do rate newsletters. And, I, I, you know, the, the curmudgeon in me really loves that. I mean, there ought to be a watchdog out there. Not, I don't know how, how honest or unbiased these guys are. But the idea of an honest, unbiased watchdog out there, you know, reporting on on what the newsletter guys are doing, their track records, how how predictive they are, or how honest they are, or how trustworthy, whatever, you know, I, I love the idea. I, I don't know how great the implementation of the idea is by these guys, but it exists, and I don't know of anybody else doing it. So I'm just mentioning it. There is such a thing called StockGumshoe.com out there. Yes, and I uh, actually I find it entertaining. Not only do I get investment ideas, but I've read a number of their decodes from the secretive newsletter uh, promotions, and um, they're actually kind of entertaining to watch them go through in like a detective-like manner and try yes. to de- decode the, the promotion. Yeah. So, so yeah. as we conclude here, Lobo, it's 2019. We have about seven weeks or so left in the year. As you reflect back on this year, uh, what were some of the biggest things you learned? I, this is a very easy question to answer, uh, thankfully, because you warned me it was coming. I had time to think about it. <laughs> uh, but but there's one thing I really got wrong this year, and that was palladium. And so obviously the, the, the best lessons are the painful ones in palladium, not only uh, top the price of gold, but it hit all time record. I mean, just incredible records over $1,800 an ounce for palladium and industrial metal. And I, I just, I got that one wrong. Not, I was, you know, I could defend myself and say, well, you know, the reasons why I got it wrong were good reasons and so on, but it doesn't matter. You know, the price went up. Now, now fortunately there, for me, you know, there are not a whole lot of ways to play that. So, you know, it's not like I missed out on this gigantic market move, but the lesson is the important thing. The lesson isn't just, oh, well, I can make mistakes. Obviously, I can. I knew that already. Uh, the, the specific here is there is a supply crunch that even though this is an industrial metal, and okay, some people try to position it as a, as a precious metal, but, but I don't think many girls are, are dying for a, a palladium engagement ring to be in the box. You know, <laughs> they want gold or white gold or maybe platinum, but... Um, you know, it's it's really not a precious metal. It's an expensive metal right now. It's my definition. It's not a precious metal. It's never been a monetary metal. It's not really a jewelry item, except in a very small way. Um, it's an industrial metal. It's used for catalytic converters in cars. And actually, it, it's, it's a pretty hard metal amongst the expensive metals. So it, it has interesting chemical and physical properties. But it's an industrial metal. And we have the global economy cooling. We have the trade war. We have China posting you know, an eye-opening slowdown, and we'll see what happens in the next quarter. We've got Germany arguably in recession already. Um, 
you know, serious stuff going on. And, and I saw the palladium price rising and I just, I couldn't convince myself it was a good idea to jump on that bandwagon in the face of all this bad economic news. Because it's an industrial metal. Uh, but I was wrong. So the lesson is, uh, at, if the supply crunch is intense enough, that supply crunch trumps economics. And if you just if you if you have to have it, even if your auto industry is 10% smaller this year than last year, you still need 90% of the palladium you needed last year. And if it's not there or not enough, it's there. The price is going to go up anyway. So that's that's I you know theoretically I'm aware of this, but it was impressive to see how palladium prices really rocketed despite all the economic bad news. So. That's the lesson. And I'll give you one more thing going forward. Where do we go from that? How do we use that? Uh, there may be something like that shaping up in the nickel uh, market. We've got the Indonesia you know, banning the exports of concentrates again. We have supply issues in nickel. We have nickel prices up. And I, I'm a nickel bull, but I've been waiting for the economic dark clouds to clear before going on nickel. And now I'm taking that lesson from palladium and saying, hmm, well, maybe I don't want to wait too long. You know, if if I'm right about the supply issues in the nickel market, they may trump the economic bad news. Uh, I have not made a determination on that yet. I have not uh, started buying nickel plays yet, but it is a top research priority of mine, and it is something that I may do um, and you know, spread the joy beyond the precious metals bets that I'm, I have much higher conviction on. You can follow Lobo on Twitter, as I mentioned earlier, at Due Diligence Guy, and there Lobo post daily articles with uh, light commentary and you can find him on the web as i referenced at independentspeculator.com if you're interested in his paid for service all you there's information there and just reach out to him via the contact page there if you have any questions about that and there's also free content available there uh, lobo as always i appreciate your honesty and your forthrightness in the interview and contributing to my audience today thank you very much thank you Thank you for listening to this Mining Stock Education podcast. Please subscribe and share with like-minded investors. Visit us on the web at miningstockeducation.com for more resources on precious metals and natural resource investing. At our website, you can also sign up for our free newsletter for interview transcripts, stock picks, and more. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not to be considered personal legal or investment advice or a recommendation to buy or sell securities or any other product. We make every effort to be accurate, but the information presented is not to be considered infallible. It may contain errors and we offer no inferred or explicit warranty. If personal advice is needed, consult a qualified legal, tax, or investment professional. Do not base any investment decision on the information contained on MiningStockEducation.com, our podcasts, or videos. Make sure you always conduct your own thorough due diligence before investing. Realize that we may hold equity positions in or be compensated by some of the companies we feature and therefore are biased and hold an obvious conflict of interest. For our full disclaimer, please visit our website.